It's Friday, February the 16th, 2024, and welcome to How to Reset Our Church, the weekly show where I, Pastor Trey Comstock, and my dear friend and colleague, Pastor Emily Larson, explore what it means to make church happen or make church happen again. This week, we are absolutely blessed uh, to be joined um, by uh, an amazingly uh, talented writer and kind of thought leader in church leadership, uh, Todd Bolsinger. Uh, he wrote what I think of as one of uh, the books on on church leadership uh, called Canoeing the Mountains, Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory. I certainly had to read it in the leadership program that I was a part of um, and uh, most folks I know have interacted with that or or many of his others books and so uh, Todd I this I, I you know you have you have done so much my introduction is rather poor and so uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself um, and uh, how you got into this work of uh, of of helping us understand how to lead churches well thank you it's nice to be with you so um, the most important way that I got into this was by being a pastor myself so for 27 years, I was a pastor 10 years as an associate in a large kind of iconic downtown church that at one time at its height oh, wow. had been the largest church in the denomination that I served, the Presbyterian Church USA. Jeez. Um, it, had, wow. it had about 9,000 members back in the 60s. And when I got there in the, in the 80s, it had about 4,000. And today it probably has about three or 400 <laughs> and, um, and that's not because of me entirely, but I was part of the years where I saw the change. And then, um, and then, uh, for 17 years, I was a pastor in a, in a church in San Clemente, California, where I was the lead pastor there for 17 years. And um, through all of the process of watching what it's like to go through change, um, I had to learn a lot about change and leading a congregation that was trying hard to be faithful in the midst of change. I had to learn how to be a person who could do leadership in the midst of change. And I ended up applying my PhD work to change leadership and ended up, that's now what I do every single day. So today my entire world is about helping faith leaders thrive as change leaders. Um, I teach that subject alone today now in the doctor of ministry program at the seminary that I serve. And I have a consulting firm, A.E. Sloan Leadership, that does that every day. So that's, that's what I do. Every day I wake up and I work with some faith and, leader who's uh, trying to navigate. Change. You know, you, you talk about this, Simon Canadian the Mountains. That's a lot of us, right? You know, I, I like the, the pitch on that book is, you know, I, you're, you follow the journey of Lewis and Clark um, as a, a frame device to talk about changing church. But, you know, you, you make the really salient point that there was a world that we – that we, the capital C church, expected to exist, and I, I guess expected to exist forever, and then the, that forever didn't turn out to be forever, and so now so much, so many of us find ourselves um, in in utterly uncharted waters of you know how do you um, how do you adapt a the capital C church or an individual church to a world um, that they simply were not constructed for. Right, right. Yeah. So if you think about Jeez. it this way, for, for the better part of 1700 years, the dominant worldview in the Western, you know, the Western world was 
um, what's called Christendom. And what Christendom means isn't that everybody is a Christian. It's that Christianity has privilege. Christianity has a home field advantage. It's like it's like if the Super Bowl was played in your home field, the most important game, and you got to have all the fans and everybody cheering you on and slept in your own bed ah. and everything was to your advantage, it would be a big advantage. And so, um, so what, for 1,700 years, Christianity was at the center of culture and supported by culture. And that began to change about 40 years ago, about 40 or 50 years ago, that began to change. But most of the church tried to work really hard just to hold on to Christendom instead of making the transition into this new post-Christendom world where we live in a more pluralistic world where Christianity is one uh, voice among many and a, where in some places it doesn't feel like you have a home field advantage at all. So it depends on where you are in the country and whatnot. And what the hard part is if you're trained <laughs> to assume that <laughs> right. every game is yeah. a home game right. and that you're always supposed to have the advantage and all of a sudden the world changes, pretty dramatic change and that's where most of us have found ourselves and then yeah of course, right yeah we had this thing called the pandemic oh yeah at least i live in california we had it here in the we <laughs> I'm not sure emily and i served a, country, a rural congregation here. during the pandemic uh we often had to play the role of reminding folks of the existence of said pandemic uh but yeah no it, i mean even in you know rural east texas it hit us yes and now i'm Really curious because you released a book during 2020, during the pandemic. Was that book written before, during, or, I mean, was that written in response to the pandemic or was that book already written when COVID started to hit? Really? Wow. The book was already written. Yeah. Yeah. So Emily, it had, so the book is called Tempered Resilience, How Leaders Are Formed in the Crucible of Change. And it was really about... Um, the way in which the big challenge of leading change yeah. wasn't the changing world, as hard as that is. Yeah. It was the resistance of your own people when you start making mm -hmm. changes to be faithful in a changing world. And what we started realizing is the most soul-sucking thing for most leaders isn't the resistance of the world out there. It's the resistance and sometimes the flat-out sabotage we get from from our own people within our own congregations and our own companies. And so so I wrote that. Then they forced the pandemic hit and every pastor I know yes. has experienced that since. So, um, yeah, that was yeah, 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 time yes. there. Was a good time. Uh, yeah, I I have I've met the the text of Matthew 1036 on my office wall, which reads one's foes shall be members of one's own household. Um, and that is, you know, I, I use it in part as a, as a device to see who's zoning out in meetings. Um, regular listeners of the show have heard about this before, but some of it, it is, it, you're right. It's a hundred percent true of often the, the, the challenge isn't the, the, the world outside our, our box. It is the phrase, well, we've always, Right. Well, we've always done X. Well, we've always done Y. But that's and, the way we've always done it. <laughs> uh -huh. And and that has certainly, you know, in, in my own lived experience of uh, of trying to lead churches to do something different, um, it is often that. Well, yeah. I mean, that that sounds really great, Pastor. But you know, we've always done fill in the blank. And so, I guess, what is from from your research, from your kind of really intense work with so many congregations and pastors seeking to do change, how have you, what are the ways you see that we should overcome that, 
right? If if the which you're hundred percent right that as the resistance is often inside our walls, how do we um, as church leaders or as folks interested in in doing church differently help folks overcome um, their kind of natural reticence to change? Well, so the first thing we have to do is is recognize a, a couple of things about that. First of all, people's resistance to change is not about yeah. them being stubborn or faithless. Yeah. It's about the fact that they are facing loss. So one of the famous phrases from Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky, who are the kind of the thought leaders behind this kind of leadership that's called adaptive change, is yeah. that people don't resist change, they resist loss. And so what you're, the first thing we have to do when we, when we get to resistance is recognize people yeah. aren't resisting us because they're bad people, they're anxious people. Um, even the whole, uh, the book Tempered Resilience is all about responding to sabotage, which is when people so resist you, they want to stop yeah. the very thing they've asked you to do. So people will oftentimes invite you, come, please come as a, as a yeah. young pastor and help us reach the next generation that is walking away from huh? the church. And you start, you start actually doing that and they go, yeah. yeah, but don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And, and when that happens, what we have a tendency to do is say, oh, these are bad people. These are people who like really don't understand the gospel. They don't really understand the mission. They, they really don't. And what we realize is sabotage is not the bad things yeah. that evil people do. It is yeah. the human things that anxious people do. And then people get anxious. They sabotage because the status quo is familiar. And we really are programmed almost like biologically to seek the familiar. And it's really hard to actually have to form people to overcome the, the their uh, reaction to the unfamiliar, yeah. to the uncharted We've, uh, territory. That's been a, a lot of our conversations um, here at this church. Cause we've got, you know, we are, we are blessed that we have some folks that, you know, remember when this building went up in, you know, 1961. Um, and can really, with deep passion, tell the story of um, the, the, the time the church was the fullest was the, the Sunday after the JFK assassination um, in 1963, um, and just what it meant to be a part of that moment. And so, you know, for, and we talked about, you know, do we like leave this spot because we're in an, urban environment where I pay a hundred grand a year in insurance, which is not interesting, but is a financial problem. Um, and, and like that didn't make sense for a lot of reasons, but then it, a lot of our conversation has even just been about what does it mean if the physical building that we are in, that was built to be the coolest thing in Methodism circa 1961, what does it mean if this building goes away? And that's been a lot of our processing is, yeah, it is like, you know, for some of our folks, they've been in this building their either their whole lives or their entire adult lives. One of the challenges for so many of us is if 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 the entire intention is to help people yeah. have a life transforming encounter with God, um, yeah. that will literally rearrange Amen. your yeah. life. That's what repentance mm -hmm. is about. Like you really reorient your life because of the good, the good news that of God's love and God's redeeming and reconciling purposes in the world. Since God is making the world right, he's going to make our live, or lives right and is inviting us to participate in making the world right, then that encounter with God is critical. 
And for so many people, they have memory of encounter with God yeah. in holy spaces and places. And yet today we're trying to reach a group of people who don't have that mental model. They don't have that history. And if anything, some of those places that we think of as holy are actually yeah. filled with feelings of judgment or trauma or discouragement or hypocrisy or just, you know, it's just, it's so now our spaces and our places are, we have to actually hold lightly. And so the question we're always asking people using the Lewis and Clark metaphor is, you know, if the whole point is you're, it used to be about a water route. That's what Lewis and Clark were trying to find a water route. So they died. (laughs) And as soon as they got to the Rocky mountains and they could no longer paddle, have to drop the canoes. They came on this because it's a canoe trip and they had to drop the canoes because the Rocky Mountains were in front of them. The question we got to ask over and over again is, is this thing we're holding on to a canoe that we actually need to let go of? Trying to carry it over this terrain is going to kill us? Or is this something that needs to be reframed? Is it that it, into something important and that we're going to take forward? And that, those are critical, critical conversations that are yeah. about more than just yeah. buildings. They're about almost everything that has shaped the past of a community. That yeah, we did um, a couple of weeks ago. We we talked about the the even like the language, the church language that we use. Um, I I have it in for the hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood. Um, specifically, not because it's theologically bad, but can you imagine a person who's never known church? who like, for whatever reason, thanks be to God, stumbled into your door. And they see written on this program that they've been, they don't know it's called a bulletin. They see on this program that they've been handed, there is a fountain filled with blood. I would leave. Or I would wonder whose blood it is, but like I would be straight out of there. And so, yeah, it, I, I, you know, it is a, a lot of these folks who theoretically we're, we're here to reach. We're here to reach, reach a world that doesn't know, doesn't necessarily know that they need God, you know, need a church community. And even down, you know, some of it is the structures, but it's so much, yeah, I, you're right. There's so much more than that. To me, it's even down to like the song titles. Can, can we, there is a fountain filled with blood. Again, theologically, that song's fine. It's fine. It's even, sounds nice. But I just, the idea of a visitor walking in who's never known a church and then finding out that there's a fountain filled with blood, I would run away as fast as I could. Emily, I'm wondering if you have a similar, like, uh, something that you're aware of. Yeah, so we of talk a lot about getting out of our our God boxes, right? Like getting out of our churches. Because, again, like you were saying, for so many, those places are not a place of solace. They are a place of judgment or of hypocrisy or um, of some experience that they had that is not a positive experience. Um, and so I think, you know, flipping the script on that is important. But I think... So much of um, my work as a deacon, um, so in the United Methodist Church, you know, we have elders and deacons for those who are following along. So as a deacon, our job is to be sort of a bridge, right? To be one foot in the community, one foot in the church. Um, And so taking church to the places and spaces in the margins um, to the people Um, So the places that maybe you don't expect to find church or you don't expect to find Christian witness in the world um, and loving those who may not think that they yet belong um, to an organization like the church or that they they should not yet belong because they don't fit the mold of 
what it means to be part of a congregation, part of a church, part of a faith community. Um, and so, yeah, I, I like sort of working and thinking outside of the box and, and adapting, um, and, and finding new ways to reach people for Christ in non-traditional models. Um, so yeah, so I've really enjoyed your work in this field of adaptive leadership as we all have to face changes in the world, um, changes from pandemics, changes from culture, changes from, um, whatever it is that has come up against your congregation that's led you to a podcast like this, how to restart a church. Um, whatever it is that's brought you here to listen to us for, you know, 30 minutes, an hour a week. Um, I'm excited for the opportunity for people to really dig in and find what it is that is their, their niche in their community, um, their way to, to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think one, I really appreciate that. Cause I think one of the ways to rethink this is you talked about being a bridge and oftentimes we think about a bridge from, yeah. from the world to a place. Instead, if you think about the, remember the original understanding of right. church yeah, was yeah. a gathering of people. Mm-hmm. There were no places, right? There was people who gathered in lots of different places, right? So if you start thinking again, is the whole point is how can we make our community yes. a, a holy gathering, a holy place? How can we make our relationships and our spaces? And what does that look like? And I'm I'm working with several different of my doctoral students and others who are actually really trying to reframe the whole notion of hospitality as an outward expression of bringing belonging into places where people feel alienated, um, bringing relationship and unity into spaces and into communities that have been divided by politics and things like that. You you start recognizing that much of our tradition um, has been built on the assumption that we have these cathedrals and kind of like I said that almost every small town, you know, there's a town square and there's a library and a courthouse Uh and then the first church or whoever got there first, Mm -hmm. first Methodist, first Presbyterian. And all the other first churches are all on second street because everybody Mm -hmm. assumed that the world was arranged Right, law, law, everything was arranged around law, education, and religion, and it was assumed to Christian religion. Well, if all of a sudden we realize, in the exact same way today, that that ge- that yeah. that geography of downtowns has changed, um, what would it require for us to rethink um, how we inhabit public spaces as a uh, a holy people seeking to and I. I wonder if that's also a reframing of our own metrics of what is discipleship. Um, Because so often the ministries that you do that are not Mm -hmm. the traditional model of, well, it's Sunday school, so it's discipleship. Or, oh, it's, you know, Wednesday night fellowship group. And so that's a Bible study. So that's discipleship. Um, Rethinking what is discipleship, rethinking what is ministry, um, because we don't we don't have metrics for that. Right. We, we can't measure that. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So discipleship, for, I mean, so I often say that actually one of the parts that we know from our research about what happened during the pandemic is when you talk to leaders, yeah. most people would say what yeah. it revealed was a crisis of discipleship. Yeah. We were just not as Christian as we were. Um, and when we asked people to live out the most basic part of Christian faith, how do you love your na- neighbor, um, <laughs> that people just refuse to. So we start recognizing that what we're 
But what we're dealing with really is a pervasive, I think Emily's entirely right, we have a pervasive crisis of discipleship that needs to be rethought. And what we know is that a lot of the large church, sometimes in the more conservative side of the church, understands of discipleship, were really built around forming people to keep the institutional mechanism of a large church going. Sometimes those are mainline, sometimes those are more uh, conservative. But there was, it's really discipleship became training people to keep the institutional church going. The reaction to that became discipleship yeah. as kind of individual self-care. So it became a Bible yeah. version of the Calm app or something, right? So instead, what, what discipleship really is from the very beginning is it's forming people to be able to be with yeah. Jesus and yeah. reveal Jesus to the world, like participate with what Jesus is doing in the world. Like discipleship, I would say that when, you know, I, somebody recently I read, somebody said, you know, when Jesus called John and James out of the boat, <laughs> um, he didn't call right, him to yeah. a three-year sabbatical, called him to immediately <laughs> yeah. start and yeah. be shaped well, and formed. You know, the, for yeah. us during the, the height of the pandemic, what we, and, and then the like, the somewhat chaotic reopening of the world that we experienced. I think one of the key like numbers we could lay our hands on are the people that came back because not everyone came back. Um, and this is not a, a unique experience to us, but not everybody came back. The people who did come back were the people who we had actually managed to connect into like a, a feeling of community, whether that it was, whether it was a small group, whether it was a service opportunity, whether it was something, the people who came back were the people who, yes, who engaged with us online while we were physically apart, but also the people who had those like deeper connections to fellow Christians that were for this had become something more than a, a thing you do. This had become a place that they experienced life and community. Um, those were the folks that, that, that returned. Um, and so I think, you know, that, that, that discipleship crisis really, I, I think speaks a lot, not just to how people live their lives, but also even to the degree to which people engage with church, because like church attendance is not necessarily indicative of a, a deeper connection in to what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, one of the big pieces, I think the big disruptions about the pandemic was for the letter, better part of the last 30 years, yep. mm-hmm. the metric everybody uh-huh. used was worship attendance. So, you know, building bigger buildings and having more services and having more people, having weekend, having weekends filled with activities was the metric that you used to show vitality. And now that's been waning for years. It just kind of crashed during COVID. And what people need to realize is even larger churches that have big crowds of folks, they don't have people coming very frequently. Like before the pandemic, before the pandemic, it was considered a regular church attender uh, if you came to worship 1.9 times a month. Less than twice. So if you yeah. got there less than a yeah. twice a month, you're really, really, faithful, right? Really, really faithful. You, the, like, like the over under is like twice a month. Well, you know, for most of our grandparents who went to church every week, who, who just, you know, would honor the Sabbath by being there, they couldn't even imagine that. Well, today we're in a place where many congregations have got just loosely affiliated groups of people who, um, if they're in present or they're online or whatever, 
Um, so you, now you start right. asking, is that, right. the, is that actually the most transformative metric? And so in, in, in our consulting where we literally we work with churches to figure out how they can make adaptive changes to be uh, really faithful to the mission that they're called to do in their community, one of the last things we have to always do is re, rework their metrics so that they start thinking, are, these the, are we actually measuring what matters? And, the, and they're different now. There's not one set of metrics that really works across the board for everyone because it's it's as diff it's as just as diverse as the context. You're if in. you so in, in what you know in, in the folks you get to work with in the like research you've done like what is what is your what is your dream for us to look, all look like in ten years right like if 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 you you know um obviously your work has borne a lot of fruit but if, if your root could grow the biggest root right like what do you think what do you hope this all looks like in 10 years um long enough that we're, we're no longer you know we're, we're, we're the pandemic is a distant memory and hopefully the next one's 90 years in the future um what is you know what do you hope this you know what do you hope this all looks like well, so um, 10 years from now, I'll be 70 and, um, sure, and yeah, I will yeah. be ready to do trout maintenance <laughs> and, uh, tr and, and um, I'll be there doing, I'll be doing trout rescue and trail maintenance <laughs> Amen. and mostly skiing and hiking. So that's what it, it, 10 years from now. Um, I always say 10 years from now, if you wrote me and said, hey, Todd, we're, we've had 10 years of God blessing us ever since you came and worked with us, please come back. I said, you're going to have to convince me to come to a celebration that gets me out of a trout stream when we fly fishing. So it better be good. Um, the things that would get me out, the things that I think we'll notice is two things. So, so to answer your question, um, 10 years from now, I would like it to be normal that we teach people how to do the kind of adaptive leadership that we do. Sure. The okay. way yeah, we yeah. teach people uh -huh. how to do good biblical yeah. exegesis. Mm -hmm. It would be a normal skill in everybody in how so adaptive leadership is really about how do you faithfully adapt your most precious yeah. values, the things you will not let go of because to let go of them is to lose something and lose your identity. Like if you lose this, you lose your identity, your DNA. How do you faithfully adapt your DNA so that you can continually fruitfully live out your mission and that yeah. that will become normal in the church? The people will understand that and that will have a capacity for that that's that's where I I think in ten years we could probably get there with enough work we're doing. Um, that's the big one, and the response to that will be lots yeah. of different creative experiments in ministry that we will not see the fruit of them for forty years. Like like I, people ask me a lot, they'll say, you know, how long do you think we're going to be in this adaptive moment? And my answer is forever. I'm yeah. pretty sure yeah. I'm going to die in the world. <laughs> I'm going to die in the wilderness, and I'm pretty sure you are too, but we're going to develop capacity so that we can be much more fruitful in the future. And so this is adaptive yeah. leadership is very long-term. It's very, it took <laughs> sure. 1,700 years to get through Christendom, and we've been in post-Christendom yeah. for about 10 minutes. So I think it's probably time, so it's probably yeah. really- no, I, I appreciate that perspective, right? That That we're not, we are not- trying to ford a small gap and then it all just goes back to normal right um that there is not there is not for the foreseeable future a normal 
there or the rather the normal for the foreseeable future is the abnormal right is the like um adapting to the situation around us adapting to a modern world adapting to your, your to post christendom and that is that is the long term project um I, I think that makes a ton of sense um and certainly matches my own lived experience of you know the 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 idea that then you know we're then just going to train we'll fi- we'll finally get a generation in that we can just train to fit into the little box again is just it's just not plausible right that's just not the way the world works well, and Trey, you and I do a lot of, you use the phrase, Todd, uh, experimental ministry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I would say that Trey and I have done some experimental things. A lot of times when we were working in the office together, we'd go, you know, why don't we just try that? Like, let's, why don't we just try that? We should, that's what we should have needed, needle pointed on a pillow is, you know, is what why if, don't what you if just we just, um, what if we just did that? <laughs> you know, what if we just tried it and see if, see if it works? Yeah, and what's great about that, Emily? So, so what I would want to say yeah. is, I would want people to be even better experimenters. So, here's one of the here's just one way. So, here's one piece of advice for you, since you guys are experimenters. Yeah, get rid of the phrase "Did it work?" Just get rid of that phrase. Instead, uh-huh. what did we learn? That phrase. Like what did we learn? So, what did we learn? <laughs> yeah, like make right make make the experiment yeah. a a question. What do we want to explore? And then ask, what did we learn? Yeah. Because, and learning to do that, that skill set, that's to me, that's like, you know, when I talk about like the skill set, when all of us went to seminary and we learned, here's the principles for exegesis. This is how you do good biblical exposition. Here's how you do good interpretation of scripture. There's a set of principles. One of them for experiments is experiments are always asking, how might we explore this question that we don't know, that we really don't have an answer to? Mm -hmm. And then what do we learn from it? And I, I have this vision in my head that every church that I ever work with will end up with a whiteboard in an office where their goal every year is to fill yeah. the whiteboard with as many learnings as possible, right? Can you get to, I would say, I have a goal, like get to yeah. 50 new things you learned this year, one a week, yeah, one a week and <laughs> right. you get to take Which a week we off need. after Christmas, a week off after Easter, right? Find things we learned this year and then and then get together and say because of what we learned this year we're going to do this this next year we're going to erase that whiteboard and we're going to fill it again with 50 more things like the yeah. those who learn the fastest mm. are going to yeah. move the furthest. But it is, yeah it is and- it is a ne- it is the never-ending experiment of just okay well uh we learned this not did it work just we learned x yeah that's amazing I like it. So and you go have ahead, Emily. some Sorry. really wonderful new thing. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just, I, I one more question before Emily lets you plug even more amazing work uh, that you've got coming. <laughs> um, you talk about resilience. And so, um, and, and, and certainly I faced this in, in my own ministry, right. Of, you know, there are seasons um, where I just feel like I'm banging my head against a wall, right. Where I'm just banging my head against a wall and just praying to God that this next time I hit my head against the wall, the wall finally breaks. Um, and so what is, you know, what is your advice for pastors, church leaders that find themselves in that banging their head against a wall place, right? Um, of, of how do you, how do we keep that, you know, um, I suspect some of it is a healthy faith life. I know. Um, but like, how do we, how do we, 
keep that keep our resilience up because this can be just a really emotionally and sometimes even physically draining process. Yeah. So so the book um, that I wrote on this is called Tempered Resilience. And Tempered Resilience was built on the metaphor that doc, from Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech, where he says, with this faith, we'll be able to hew wow. out of a mountain of despair a stone. <laughs> yeah. Hew is the verb, hew. And so what, for most of us, what we think is when we hit, when we're, you know, we're banging our head against the rock, what yeah. we're actually trying to do is we're trying to bash it. We're trying to break it. I said, what, what do you do when you're facing a mountain of despair? Well, you don't blow it up with dynamite and you don't bash it with a sledgehammer and you don't back down. You hew it. Yeah. You transform it. Transform despair into hope requires a tempered tool. And a tempered tool is like a chisel. It is yeah. both flexible and strong. And tempered resilience is all about the formation needed for leaders when they are facing a mountain of despair. And the most surprising part for most leaders is that formation process starts when you're facing the mountain of despair. Well, that's you good. You almost to know. can't can't prepare for it. That is you good. You learn enough. leadership that's, while you're leading. That's liberating, so actually. Saying, yeah, it is. Well, like, just put it this: you became a leader. Yeah. Well, you became a leader right yeah. after you were good at something that was not leading. Right. Like the reason why most of us became past is we were either pretty good preachers. Somebody heard us speak and said, you're good at speaking. So now maybe you'll be good at lead, pastoring or leading as if three points in a poem relate to a people in the same way, right? Or you're good at running a program and organizing people. And they went, okay, you can organize people into a program or whatever. So, okay, we'll make you the pastor right. of a congregation or a leader of a movement. And, and you realize, oh, oh, we were good at we were good at something that gave us credibility. People trusted us because they saw our competence. Now you actually have to develop the adaptive capacity to actually bring transformation. And that's, that's the key is genuine adaptive challenges yeah. require transformation. Leadership is really about taking people through the process of transformation so they can they yeah. can accomplish the mission. No, but I, I, I really find that liberating because, you know, I, you know, I, I often – um, feel wildly in over my head, um, and I and I and I say this out loud in part because I, I do not think this is a unique experience. Um, of I often feel wildly <laughs> over my head. It is good to know that in some ways, yeah, we all are. Um, that's the point. Is you know when there was nothing that could have prepared us for this. It is in the process of working through this challenge that we are, you know, God working in us, but that we kind of become the tool that can do this. Um, that is, uh, I deeply appreciate that. <laughs> well, you have some amazing new things coming up and I cannot wait for them to come out. I'm very excited. Tell us all about what's coming next. Yeah. So I'm, um, so this summer we're going to be publishing four little books, each of them under a hundred pages. They'll all be in a series you can buy individually or, or, or together that are all around the four mm -hmm. biggest mistakes that really good leaders make. And it comes from yeah. having coached, um, hundreds and worked with hundreds of churches and leaders through the process of adaptive change. And what we discovered was our, really our best leaders kept making these problem, making these mistakes because they were mistakes that, um, 
that came out of their success. And so what you learn is we, when we're successful and when we've accomplished things and God's used us, we actually do form some, some patterns or habits that then get in the way when we're trying to lead change. And so, so there's four, four little books in the practicing change series and, and we're, beginning to be talking about those and we'll be we'll be teaching and, and the first one has a really catchy title that how to not waste a crisis quit trying harder <laughs> yeah how not to waste a crisis yeah the very first very first thing we noticed is that really really good leaders when they're yeah. facing a problem they double down on trying harder they'll just good leaders are good workers they're hard yeah. People. Uh-huh. so they work I... themselves to death in some cases literally i mean but they often work themselves to burn out and the and the mistake isn't that you're trying is that you're trying harder. Yeah. It's that you're trying harder at the old best practices rather than training for new terrain. And so we take people through a process of learning how to go from trying harder. Yeah, I to often, um, especially with day. this church, remind myself that works righteousness will not win. Right, that works righteousness is not the answer. <laughs> I'm I'm a good I'm a good Wesleyan theologian, and uh, I will tell anyone uh, Wesleyan theology is borderline works righteousness. It's not there, but it's like borderline works righteousness. So we have, I think, a particularly inbuilt desire to find the method, and we just do this thing. And if I just work harder, if I just sink my sanctification or the betterment of this church harder, then I'm finally going to get there. Um, and yeah, I have, I've had to, particularly at this one, where it is not a question of I could be here 80 hours a week. That's not the thing that's going to um, that's going to really lead the change. Um, yeah, that works righteousness is just, which is my, you know, one of my great sins, um, is just not going to thing that's going to, going to change it. Well, even for folks who don't think of it in the theological frame, most of us emotionally and psychologically believe that if we just work harder, we can outwork this problem. And there's actually lots and lots of evidence that show that when you're in a system that is in a new terrain, working harder at the old best yeah. practices is like paddling <laughs> yeah. harder yeah. in a canoe no. where there isn't any water. You're just, yeah. you're just going to yeah. burn out your Absolutely. road. Absolutely. Well, Todd, thank you very much. Um, I, I yes, have thank you. certainly, um, um, found a lot, um, both in what you've written, um, but also in what you shared with us today. And so, um, I am uh, profoundly thankful that you, uh, took this, uh, took this 40 minutes to, uh, to be with us and to, to share this with others. Um, and, um, other than the books, is there anything else you want to, to promote, uh, before we close out the show? I just think if folks are interested in getting more help, they can find us at, at my consulting company. It's a E Sloan Leadership, A E S L O A N, A E Sloan Leadership.com and find us. You'll find we got lots of good people, we got lots of good coaches, we got lots of good resources, and sometimes we're working with you know small congregations and we're working with international denominations. We're doing, we're doing a strategic plan for a major university and we're working with Joining with us for another edition of How to Be Sort of Church. Um, if you want to share your thoughts on um, what it, your journey in restarting a church or the struggles you've had um, or the successes you've had, right? You know, if, if we, can be a, we can be a space for that. Just email us, uh, thegoodnessofgodpod at gmail.com. That is thegoodnessofgodpod at gmail.com. We would gladly read your thoughts on the air and add 
um, even more uh, to this conversation. If you want more of everything that we do here, the Servants Now Media Lab, uh, we're like Servants Now on most of the things. I say everything. That's not true. Most of the things. Um, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, our website, ServantsNow.org, YouTube.com slash ServantsNow. We're just about everything that we do ends up in one way or another. The show is made possible by a generous Innovators Grant, the Texas Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. If you want to support this work, we could use your help. Uh, like, comment, subscribe, share it with people. Also, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts actually make a really big difference for podcasts. Uh, so uh, head on over there and give us a rating. Um, but also, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you next time.